O congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when the world is in turmoil and things are being turned upside down, the Holy Spirit instructs us to go back to the basics. To go back to the basics of a spirit-filled life, marriage, family, work. To go back to the basics of living a spirit-filled life, spirit-filled living in the kingdom of light, as opposed to fleshly living in the kingdom of darkness. The Lord calls us as children of light to be who we are in Christ, to live as those who have been set free to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we come to the third group that the apostle addresses as he explains what spirit-filled living looks like. First of all, he applied it to marriage, then to the family unit, parents and children, and now he applies it to servants and masters. Now, the world of our text is two millennia removed from us here in Canada in the 21st century. It's a very, very different context. We need to take a little time to think it through before we go into the details of the text. If you have an ESV Bible and you read the preface, you'll see that in the preface to the ESV, there's actually an explanation for why the word that begins our text, bondservants, is translated as bondservants. The word in Greek is doulos, it's slave, and it sometimes is translated as slave or servant. But this word, in the context of the first century, the Roman Empire, can mean a lot of things. When we think slave, we think of African-American slavery and all the horrors associated with taking one particular race of people and subjugating them cruelly. That's what comes to our mind. But in the first century, slavery would not have those connotations for the readers of this epistle. Slavery was a very, very wide and diverse concept. It could include the dehumanizing treatment of people in the, in the salt mines, for instance, where the work was terrible and, and they were treated like animals and they would die uh, very, very young. But it could also include, and it also did include, the professions. Many of the doctors and the accountants and the teachers that people in this context would have known would have been slaves. It wasn't a race-based thing. And some of those slaves who were professionals, they could sometimes have their own business and their own income with the permission of their master. They could save up money to purchase their own freedom. Uh, other people who had debts could sell themselves into slavery or into bonded servitude for a certain amount of time to pay off the debt. So the idea of, of slavery or servitude in the first century world in the Roman Empire is a lot different than the word slavery comes, uh, brings to our mind today in Canada, the 21st century. Servants, bond servants, were often part of the family or part of the household. They just were part of the extended family and treated in some ways like children 
in the sense of, for, you, for instance, you think of Abraham saying, I'm going to die without an heir, so the heir to my fortune, he was a rich man, will be my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. So they could even inherit sometimes the, the wealth of their master. So a very, very different concept. You think of Proverbs chapter 31, verse 15, speaking about the godly woman, and says this, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So the household includes not only her children, but also the maidservants. And slaves were part of the church. You think of Romans chapter 16. If you have your Bible handy, Romans 16, verse 10 and 11, there are greetings that the apostle sends to people in Rome. And in 16, verse 10, he says, Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Well, those are slaves. They belong to a certain family. And those slaves in that household are in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are members of the church. Look at verse 11 of Romans 16. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. And the same thing. These are slaves or bondservants in that household. You think of the letter of Paul to Philemon, where he speaks about Onesimus, a runaway slave who has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and goes back, not only as a servant, but as a brother of Philemon. And so when the gospel came into this context, the gospel began to change things. Slaves by the Christians were seen as human beings, not just as tools or resources. Slaves were treated as completely equal human beings before God. Paul writes to the Galatians that in Christ there was neither slave nor free, but we are all one in Christ. This was, this was radical in first century Roman Empire. Slaves could become servants of the church, ministers of the church. They could become deacons or elders or preachers. And so when we come to our text this morning, we need to understand this, that Paul is not commenting on the legitimacy of the social structure of his time. In fact, in other places in the New Testament, Paul says to the slaves, if you can get your freedom, get it. But the church does not preach revolution. The church does not preach radical overturning of social structures. The church preaches the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as the good news of Christ comes in the power of the Spirit and changes hearts and relationships and families and communities, then that leaven goes throughout the community, goes throughout society, and great and significant changes occur. And so in our text this morning, even though it's in a very, very different context 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit is giving principles which apply in any economic system or context. In the first century, where up to 50% of the population could be enslaved in, in the Roman cities. If you're walking around a Roman city, every second person you met or saw was most likely a slave. And it applies then to that situation, but these principles apply also to the feudal system of the Middle Ages, to the industrial era, and to the post-industrial information age service economy in which we now live. That word economy is important. It has something to do with our text. Economy, the word economy in English, comes from the Greek oiko 
nomos, which is the, literally the, the household rules or, or the way that the household is administered. Oikos is house and nomos is law or regulations. So that's what economy comes from. It, it originally applied to the administration of the household. And the household, of course, was not just a little house like we know it, where we just kind of sleep and we go away from there to work. But in the ancient world, the household was the center of life, family, and economic activity. And the closest thing to that today would be people that live on a farm, where it's not only their place of residence, but it's their place of work, and then all the people that are connected with it. Some, some might even live on a little house on the property that work for the farmer. That's the kind of idea you have. We have the word economy in the scriptures. If you look at Luke chapter 16, verse uh, 2, I believe it is, Luke 16, 2, that parable of the dishonest manager. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. If you've got your Bible in front of you, that word management in the Greek is oikonomia, economy, the administration of the household. Now, we live in the information age, the, the, service, uh, the, the service economy, and we live after the Industrial Revolution split the home from the place of work. Cottage industry where families would work together that was cut up and people went off to the factory. It was a massive change that happened in society. So we, we have a hard time thinking of the home as the center of the place of work and economy. But in Paul's day, and in much of the history of the human race, work began at home and was centered on the home. And into that context, the apostle speaks the word of God. And he describes faithful daily labor as part of the spirit-filled life of the children of God. And you see as we go through this spirit-filled living section that it's all got to do with living in the Lord. Marriage, husband and wife, relate in the Lord. Family, parents and children, relate in the Lord. And our daily labor as we relate with those whom we serve or who serve us is to be in the Lord. And so Paul, through the Holy Spirit, he sanctifies and consecrates daily labor as, an, as a holy thing, a thing for the Lord an act of worship. Now, this is a radical idea in the first century. And in fact, it's still a radical idea, I think, today for many. For the Roman thinking class, the philosophizing class, the, the idle rich, the highest aspiration was to not have things to do to have what they called otium. Otium was being free from having to do any kind of errands or tasks. You're just free to think and philosophize and enjoy time with friends and, and enjoy your pleasure. It didn't mean sitting around doing nothing, but it did mean that you weren't a slave to your industry and labor. And so otium was what they dreamt of and wanted to have, and Negotium was not having the freedom from work that you desired. Now, it's hard to bring that over into English, but in the Romance languages, French and Portuguese and others, that's still the word for work. 
That's still the word for business. In, in Portuguese, for instance, the word for business is negocio, which is from the Latin, neg ultium, no leisure, no leisure, no freedom from work. So we have the word negotiate in English. That's the closest I can find in English. And negotiate comes originally from the idea of doing business. Negotiate. I'm not able to relax and just enjoy myself, but I have to do things. I have to do work. I have to do labor. I have to do industry and commerce. And so work, especially physical work, was looked down upon in the first century as it is today, I think. If you, if you talk to people that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and unfortunately, if you talk to some people that do know the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes the dream is not to work. Sometimes the dream is to have freedom 55 or freedom 50 or freedom 45. The number keeps going down. I remember meeting a young man in a small town on the coastal area of the northeast of Brazil many years ago. And he was all excited. He said, Pastor, I, I, I got a new job. I got a job. It's a government job, which is the dream, because it's hard to lose a government job. And the job is to be at the municipal pumping station just to be there at nights. That's all I have to do, just be there. I hang up my hammock, I fall asleep, and I'm paid for it, and I wake up in the morning and go, and I go home. And this man was in his early 20s, and he was already calculating, if I do so many years of work for the government, then when I'm about 50, I can retire with a full pension. And I'm so excited, I praise God, that I'm just doing nothing and earning money so that I can save up to do nothing. That was his dream. That's not what the Holy Spirit teaches us about life and about work. The scriptures exalt work and sanctify hard, faithful labor. And so the Text begins, bond servants, obey your earthly masters, literally your masters according to the flesh, as you would Christ. You see that at the end of the verse? As you would Christ. Do your duties, do your work, as if you're doing it as an offering to the King of kings and Lord of lords, to the beloved of your soul, to the one who loves you with eternal love, to the one who came and suffered and bled and died for you, do it for him. Well, that changes things, doesn't it? If we're doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ, then how are we to do it? Well, with fear and trembling. Now, this is a, a bit of a surprising phrase in our text, with fear and trembling. That doesn't sound very nice. Do we want to live our lives in fear? Does the Lord Jesus expect us to tremble with fear? That doesn't fit, does it, with the rest of the scriptures? What does it mean? What's well, a translation challenge here? First of all, fear and trembling is not fear, being afraid, and trembling, but it's, it's, a, it's a phrase, for instance, we say, I'm sick and tired. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm sick and I'm tired. It just means I'm really, really, I'm done with this. I'm sick and tired. It's, it's a phrase which means one thing. And so fear and trembling is a phrase which you take together. And the idea behind it is reverent 
obedience. Fear in the scriptures can be afraid, but fear can also be reverence. The Bible talks about fearing the Lord, living in the fear of the Lord. That is not a bad thing. It just means that we really want to do what pleases him. It's important to us, and we're careful and meticulous to do what pleases him. And, the, and, and our worst fear is that we would displease him. That's what We don't want that. We're not afraid of him, but we're afraid of bringing sadness and shame upon his, his name. And so it's a deep desire to carry out our office faithfully and well. There are many times in the scripture where this phrase is used. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 for a moment. 1 Corinthians 2, 3. And you'll see it used there, 1 Corinthians 2, 3, where the apostle says to the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So he describes himself as being in fear and trembling. And the reason is, is because he felt weak, he felt inadequate to his task, and he really wanted to do his job well for the glory of God and for the edification of the church. He wasn't afraid of God. He wasn't afraid of the church. He just really wanted to do his job well. Then look at 2 Corinthians 7.15, a little further on, a few pages further on, 2 Corinthians 7.15. And there you see him talking about how Titus was received. He says, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. So it's a relationship of affection. He was received with reverent obedience. They took his preaching and teaching as the very word of God and conformed their lives and minds to it. So fear and trembling, I was trying to think of an example. I'm not sure if this one works for you. But if you're building a nuclear reactor, then you really want to make sure you get things right. You want to follow all the schematics, all the diagrams, and, and all of the protocols, because if you don't get it right, it can be very, very messy and very painful, and a lot of people can be hurt and, and die. So there's this, there's this concern, this zeal to strive to get things right, knowing that if I'm careless and sloppy, that's going to bring a lot of pain and, and hurt. That's kind of the idea behind fear and trembling. So obey your masters according to the flesh with that careful, zealous, reverent obedience with a sincere heart. In other words, don't be sloppy. And and, and the apostle piles up the negative words here. He says, not by way of eye service. Look there in verse 6. In other words, don't just do stuff so when people look, they say, yeah, that looks okay, but under, you know, you've, you've swept the dirt under the, under the rug. And so that's eye-pleasing. When the mistress comes into the room, she says, oh, great job, you've cleaned the room, but meanwhile, the dirt's under the rug. I spoke once with a very poor lady, a very new Christian. She lived off a few dollars a day. And I asked her, what has changed in your life since the Lord Jesus changed your heart and and brought you to himself? And this is what she said. Pastor, she said, she worked as a maid. Pastor, she says, I no longer sweep the dirt under the rug. She was not, no longer 
serving by way of eye service, just to make things look as though they were okay. She was now doing it. She was now cleaning the room for the Lord Jesus. Not as people pleasers, says the apostle in verse 6, and that's the same thing. Not just to please people, not just to do enough to pass cursory inspection, not just doing as little as you can, as little as you can get away with. See, that's the slave mentality. The slave works to avoid the whip. And the minute the slave driver looks away, the slave slacks off. There's no reason why I should work harder than I have to. I'm going to do the minimum to avoid punishment. Now, that kind of an attitude, people-pleasing, eye service, without sincerity of heart, is something which unfortunately doesn't just happen in the world, but it happens among those who call themselves children of God. I remember a few years ago that in Recife, a, an apartment building fell to the ground and some people died, just collapsed. And when they evaluated what had happened, they realized that the apartment building, which had been built by a company owned by an evangelical Christian pastor, had not followed the building codes. And the pillars, the support pillars, looked really good from the outside, but inside, instead of using rebar, they'd use just a thicker wire, save money. And instead of it being solid concrete or whatever it was supposed to be, it was just on the outside it looked like concrete, but the inside was filled with all kinds of used paint cans and construction debris. And so it just was done to look good, to pass an eye inspection, and people died because of that attitude, that ungodly attitude towards work and service. The spirit-filled child of God does the opposite. The spirit-filled child of God in our daily activities and labors, whatever they are, we do meticulous work, we do beautiful work, we do top quality work, even if no one will ever see it. Even if we're putting in something that's going to be hidden by drywall, we do it well. Nobody's going to ever see it, but the Lord Jesus sees it. And so we do it well. Because it's for God, it's an act of worship. And so the scripture teaches us this morning, brothers and sisters, that our daily activities, our duties, our daily labor means something that our daily activities, our daily work, is an act of ongoing worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a Christian does not say TGIF. A Christian doesn't live for the weekend. A Christian doesn't say, I'm so thankful that my work is finished. But a Christian says TGIM. Thank God that it's Monday. I am empowered by the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to begin a new week of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ by doing the things that he has called me to do in the place that he has called me to do them by fulfilling my office for him. With a sincere heart, look at verse 5. As we would Christ, look at verse 6. As bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, and look at verse 7, rendering service with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. How often don't we catch ourselves in that scene where we're just 
doing it because we have to. And we're just doing it so that people don't get, onto our, get on our backs about not doing what we're supposed to do. And the Holy Spirit calls us to something a lot higher. Doing our service with a good will as to the Lord. Now, this is not just for bond servants, and you see that in the end of verse 8 there. It's for everyone. It's for those who are servants. It's also for those who are free. All people are called to do good for the Lord Jesus. Our work is worship, and God is pleased with our offerings, and he gives back. He, he blesses faithful, faithful work in our office and calling in our, in our labor. Now, you remember that the rich Romans celebrated otium, just being free from any kind of labor. But Christianity understands that grace restores nature. When the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and lives, then he helps us to get back to the way things were made to be. He restores the creational ordinances of marriage in the Lord, family in the Lord, and work in the Lord. Now, a lot of Christians are confused on this. A lot of Christians think that work is a consequence of the fall. Because after the fall, God said to Adam, well, you're going to do your work in the sweat of your brow. And so we think, well, work is a curse. And when before the fall, then Adam and Eve could just lie in their hammocks in the garden. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, rather, that Adam was placed, man was placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. Work is not the result of the fall. Work is what we were created to do. And we see that in the second Adam. We see that in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pay much attention to those years of his ministry that led up to his death and his resurrection. But what did the Lord Jesus do for the first 30 years of his life? He was in a small little town. And from the earliest age, because that whole idea of children not working is a very modern invention. From the earliest age, according to his ability, he was helping dad. And his dad was a carpenter. The master of the universe. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, God of God, very God of very God, who dwells in an approachable light, through whom all things were made and in whom all things together. He was not ashamed to get his hands dirty and to work with his dad as a carpenter for most of the time that he spent here on this earth. And that, that tells us something about what the Lord thinks about work. Paul was a tent maker. He worked with his hands in a culture which despised work. And that was a deliberate act on his part. He didn't have to. The churches could have supported him, as was his right and their duty. But he did it to teach the culture around him that work is not to be despised. If you look in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 8. And we'll spend a little bit of time here in these verses. 2 Thessalonians 3, 8, that's on page 990. And he says, 
We weren't idle, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul wanted to preach with his life. And he was in a context where people thought that work is shameful. And so Paul says, okay, here I am. I'm the pastor of the church. I'm going to do physical work because it's not shameful. And I'm going to show you by my actions. For even when we were with you, verse 10, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. They had achieved that Roman dream of otium. They could just sit around doing nothing, gossiping, and being unproductive and unfruitful in God's world and God's kingdom. And so what does the apostle say? Verse 12, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. That's what doing good looks like in the Christian life. Look at verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Good. And that brings us back to our text, to Ephesians chapter 6, because that's exactly what the apostle says. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Being faithful in our daily labor is good. It is doing good. And it brings glory to God. And it brings down the rewards and the blessings of God. Now, there's one example in the scriptures which happens even before the New Testament, which is just a fascinating example of this biblical truth. You think of Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold as a slave. It was so unfair. It was so wrong. And I think many of us would be tempted to not want to walk and just to be dragged along by the slave drivers. And when he was sold into Potiphar's household, to just sit there kicking the door of our cell and screaming out that it's not fair, I want to go home to my family. That's probably, I think, how I would be tempted to react. But what did Joseph do? He looked at his situation, he realized that it was not easy to extract himself from it. And he said, well, this is where God has placed me. God, in his sovereign uh, direction and control over the universe and over my life, has made me a slave right now. This is where he's put me. So I'm going to be a slave for God. And he was. He did an awesome job at whatever he was told to do. And he rose through the ranks of the household servants. He was the, the administrator. He ran the entire oikonomos, the entire oikonomia, the economy of the house. And he would have, in that position, lived a very good life. Even though he was still technically a servant. But his life would have been very comfortable, pleasant, with nice clothing and good food, and lots of freedoms. And then, you know the situation, he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and because he did what was right and good, he didn't give in to his own lusts or his own uh, selfish desires and sin, but he honored God in doing what is good, and he was cast into prison. And there he did exactly the same thing. He didn't scream and carry on and and kicked the the, the door of his cell, he said, this is where I am. I'm a prisoner, so I'm going to be a prisoner for the Lord. I'm going to be the very best prisoner you can be. And the same thing happened. He was promoted 
through the ranks of the prisoners until finally he had more freedom and was able to serve other prisoners, which the Lord used eventually to liberate him from the prison, to put him as second command in Egypt, to save Egypt from famine, to save the covenant people from dying from famine, and in that way to ensure that the line of the Messiah stayed alive so that the Lord Jesus could be born. If Joseph had had a different attitude, if Joseph had not had a godly attitude towards work and towards his duties, even in very difficult circumstances, then humanly speaking, the holy line would have died out. The Lord used his faithfulness as a contributing factor to the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we learn from Joseph's example, brothers and sisters? Our daily faithfulness and our daily work is not insignificant. It means something in the history of the world. It means something for the worship of God. Christian workers are to be as different from unbelieving workers as the light is from the darkness. And as the gospel comes to us this morning, that's one thing we ought to be reflecting upon in our lives. When people see the way I do my daily tasks, do I stick out like light in the darkness? That's a responsibility for those who serve. It's also a responsibility for those who are served. Because in verse 9, the apostle says, masters do the same, have the same attitude. This isn't about you. It's not about you getting your way. It's about the Lord Jesus. And so if you are a Christian business owner or executive or in some kind of leadership position, you can need to ask yourself the same question. Are you as different from others in your position as light from the darkness? Can people tell from a mile off that the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ lives in your heart and powerfully transforms your attitudes and your actions. Masters are also called to do their job as to the Lord. The danger in being a leader is that you think that you're something. You think that you're somehow superior to other people. But the apostle reminds us of who we are. Before the infinite majesty of God, you and your servant are just Two fallen human beings in need of grace. And the apostle says, listen, masters, and the word is kyrios. He says, you guys, you are a kyrios, but remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is your kyrios. He is your master and the master of the person who's serving you. And there is no partiality. There's no discrimination in him. God doesn't look down on people because they're lower in the company Hierarchy. God doesn't look down on someone because of their level of education or the type of work that they're doing. God sees us all, the greatest prince and the lowest servant. He sees us all equally as human beings made in the image of God. And that's what he calls us to do. He calls us to see everyone as made in the image of God. And so he says, stop your threatening because power corrupts. And if we have the life and the job of somebody under our power, I can fire you if you don't listen to me. I can make your life difficult. 
That's a temptation which assails those who are in leadership. And so just like with the husband and wife relationship, just like with the relationship between parents and children, so when we take our places in the economy, we can pervert things by making the relationships based on raw power or control. This can be active, mistreating people that are afraid to lose their jobs. They put up with your abuse because they're afraid of losing their jobs or, or being demoted. It can also be passive. We can take people for granted when they serve us. We can treat them as things rather than as human beings. We have to realize that all of us in some way lead or are led, serve or are served in different moments in our life. And when we call an office and we're upset and we yell at the receptionist, or when we're at a restaurant and we are impatient with the waitress, or we complain or we're just miserable because we're having a bad day, and we don't treat that person as a person, but as a thing that is there to serve us, and they become a lightning rod for our displeasure, that does not please the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not living a spirit-filled life. When we serve others, we serve as though serving the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When we are served by others, we treat those who are serving us as if the Lord Jesus Christ was giving us that service with profound respect and gratitude and appreciation and humanity. This is the good life, and it has built-in blessings. When we do good to each other in our economic relationships, we receive back from the Lord. You see that in verse 8. The calculus for return on investment in the kingdom of God is radically different than the calculus used by the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness looks at people and says, what can I get out of that person? And the kingdom of light looks at people and says, how can I bless that person, whether as a leader or as a servant? So how can we live like that, brothers and sisters? Well, we live like this when we are spirit-filled and spirit-led. And how can we get spirit-filled and spirit-led? Well, we confess, the scripture teaches, we got to pray. When we pray constantly for God's grace and Holy Spirit and thank him for these gifts, then he uses the word and the sacraments and the other minor means of grace to pour his love, his grace, his spirit into our lives, to transform us from glory to glory after the image of Christ our Savior. So if we want to live like this, the way that the gospel is calling us to live, we need to do it in the power of the Spirit, and he comes to us in the word and the sacraments, especially in the means of grace. So what we're going to do right now as we end this sermon is we're going to go to hymn number 63, and we're going to pray. Whenever we sing, we're praying. It's a prayer of praise or a prayer of petition. And now in hymn 63, we're going to pray through the Lord's Prayer. And as we pray, we're going to pray that in our lives, his name would be hallowed and adored, that in our faithful labor, his kingdom would come and advance, that in our daily faithfulness, his will would be done, that our daily bread would be granted to us through our faithful industry, we will come to him and ask forgiveness for the times when we haven't done this properly. And we will ask in the end, in the final stanza, that in all of this, his kingdom, his glory, 
and his power might be exalted. So let's now come to hymn number 63, sing the verses 1 through to 8, and in this way we will praise the Lord together. Amen. <laughs> 